This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. Welcome to the seventh season of the Combustion Chronicles podcast, where bold leaders combine with big ideas to make life better for all of us. I'm your host, Sean Nason, CEO and founder of Mophie. As a maverick-minded, human-obsessed, experienced evangelist, I believe the only way to build a sustainable and thriving business is to put people first. Throughout this season, we'll be connecting you, the listener, with cutting-edge leaders in the experience world who are challenging old ways of thinking with bold new ideas and a commitment to human-centric design. Experience matters, people matter, and revenue matters. That's why it's time to ignite a people-first experience revolution. My guest today, Mark Rickmeyer, is CEO of TXI a product innovation company based in the Chicago area. Over the past 20 years, he's created more than 100 mobile apps, custom web applications, and intuitive user experiences for clients ranging from AccuWeather to the Field Museum. But he doesn't just share his amazing ideas with clients. He's also the founder of the Kermit Collective, a high-trust community of software company leaders, and Walkshop, which organizes multi-day hiking and design thinking experiences. And he has created two card games to drive employee engagement, both in-person and distributed settings. Welcome to the Combustion Chronicles, Mark. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you know, Mark, there's a lot of stuff just in your bio, but I love how so much of what you do focuses on very different aspects of our what we call our experience ecosystem, from the digital experience, but really into leadership and culture. Mm-hmm. Was there like a specific moment, story in your career when you realized, hey, I'm creating experiences and not just software? Or did that yeah. make us that mindset evolve over time? So early in my start at TXI, we had a client in Tokyo and they created a storytelling framework called Pachakacha. That means chit chat in Japanese. Basically, it's a way of, of telling a story. So rather than people prattling on and on and on, they said, you get exactly... 400 seconds to tell a story and the way the story will work is you get 20 images so don't give me slides with lots of text you get one image and that slide will advance whether you're ready or not every 20 seconds so you will have exactly 400 seconds to tell the story and i had never heard of this concept before they were coming to us to help build a platform that people could record and you know and host their talks think you know like this big global website like ted where you have these talks from all over the world and initially i thought this was going to be just a normal web application, you know, I could see, I could see a map, I could see talks in different cities, I could follow different speakers. And then I started actually watching these talks and better, I went to Pachakacha nights and I saw people giving these talks and there is a whole global community of thought leaders and creatives, you know, artists, musicians, people who are giving these talks. One of my favorites actually that the founder told me about was a 400 second talk on what, if anything, is Big Bird. Like, what is Big Bird? Seriously. Like, it was like, a, it was like a scientific analysis of like, what is he? Is he a dinosaur? Is it a real bird? It was one of the funniest things, but taken from a very scientific lens, it was just some of the most incredible 
conversations. And, and when it's when you have a really good speaker and they're nailing those transitions, they're really fun. And if you're a really bad speaker, they're done in 400 seconds. It's like a really great way to organize an event. And there's so much energy in these Pachakacha nights. So they happen literally. They're in thousands of cities all over the world. I was I had not heard of this before. And so when I first got introduced to this community, this wasn't about building a website where people could upload content and match their audio to the content. This was the experience of facilitating this community of bring this community and we started seeing the power in storytelling so we adopted that every single person who joins our company now has to give a pachaka shot to the rest of the company introducing themselves and people will take it in such creative directions one person explained their path to txi one person walked around their apartment and showed all the favorite things they've ever bought and like what those things meant to them one wow. person went through their like their favorite music history like it's really interesting when you have exactly 400 seconds to tell a story it's like, you know, like Twitter, like when you can give someone a constraint, it, you know, it involves incredible creativity. How can you just use those small amount of characters? This creative constraint has created this whole community around storytelling. And this website was the beginnings of that, I guess, me learning the power of storytelling and building, you know, not just the experience of being there, the energy of being in the room when that happens. Yeah. But bringing that into our company and making that part of now our, our own company culture and our own onboarding experience. Well, and you know, Mark, when I first met you, we were in an event in Chicago and you grabbed my attention. And like you said, it wasn't 400 seconds in, with some of those speakers because there's some of them I wish may have been 400 seconds. <laughs> um, but you, <laughs> but it was a story and that's what connected you and I and, and how you look at experience and in particularly how you look at experience as a CEO of a company. And I think that is really valuable for what our listeners need to hear. And so much of your culture now at TXI is built around this type of experience. I know like you've gone to a remote first model in the company. You know, what are two or three things that companies need to be doing to take care of their employees, whether it be remote or in an office? So it's one of the things I've been thinking, well, we think about the employee experience an awful lot. That's a big part of what I guess takes up my mental CPU every day. And our journey towards being remote first, I would say is relatively new. You know, this is a company that had created an amazingly, but hyper-optimized Chicago experience. You never got to see it before we shut it down in pandemic, but we had the best smelling office in Chicago. It was wonderful. We had a chef. We had a kitchen. We would make meals together every day. You could smell it when you walked into the building. We made, made all the other offices pissed off, especially on bacon days. Like the whole building smelled great, at least our floor. And it was <laughs> and just I love amazing. Bacon. Oh god! So when you came in, like, and clients would just you know rock up surprisingly at eleven fifteen. They go, "Oh, what's on the menu today?" Like people would spend time and get away from the keyboard and spend time together. That was a very intentional experience when you think about the cost of building out a commercial grade kitchen, the ovens, the ductwork, the multiple dishwashers in what would have been normally office space. But as we started getting you know, more and more people working from home, more and more people hired from not in Chicago, the experiences we need to cultivate were no longer the, I need to be able to eat with you in person in Chicago because the person you're now talking to is in a different part of the country. Or I didn't, like as we said in our client in Japan, a different country altogether. And so we had to, I think, first really realize that the experiences that had gotten us that far, the ones that really helped shape our culture, were ones we had outgrown and we needed to let go of. And we needed to be thinking about new rituals and new experiences that would help us to foster the same sense of culture and connection and belonging, but that would work for who we were now. And so this has been kind of a, a level of, in, of investigation and experimentation of how do we make that same sense of belonging happen when you are remote. 
And I think one of the things we just realized slowly but surely is that like rent is a dumb way to facilitate experiences. You think about dropping 20 grand a month in rent and, you know, maybe out of 70 people, 10 are taking advantage of it. That's a pretty bad ROI. What if you could take that money you're dropping in rent and say like, hey, every every couple of months, we're going to try to fly everyone together and have a co-working week and we're going to work together. Or what if we, we started creating these home office days where home stands for hang out and meet experiment as an acronym. We're going to get together for a couple of days and you know have that time to be together. You can do more in-depth experiences around bringing people together than you could just dropping money in rent where it's going to sit empty most of the time for most of the people. So this has been a, a kind of a big learning curve for us is trying to be more intentional with how we're using that investment to foster connection. And so we found just to give very practical advice, different tools that help us to bridge those connection gaps. One is a tool called Notion that we use very heavily. This is where if you have everyone in different parts of the world, you need to find a way to solve a library problem where you don't have information in a shared drive, in Google Drive, in Tetra, in a handbook. Like You need to have everything easily accessible to improve transparency and equitable access to everyone. So something like Notion is now what we use to capture all of our internal thoughts and document all of our policies and decisions and things. Everyone can find something. Two, there's a tool I really like called Thought Exchange. I don't know if you're familiar with that one. No. So one of the biggest challenges is when people are remote and they're not all together is that you can't read body language You know, the same way. You can't really understand what's going on. And if you do something like I first did when I first did this, something silly like sending a survey, you are the only person who sees the results. And so you will assume that the thing that is most frequently mentioned is the thing that's most important. So let's say in your company, you really want to promote transparency. You haven't asked me anything and you get up and say, hey, employees, anything you want, let me know what you want to talk about. I'll answer any questions. If you send a survey like that out, you will, of course, see all the answers. And then you'll assume the most frequently mentioned thing is the most important thing you should talk about. We did that. And at the time, the most frequently mentioned thing was space you know do we need office space do we just need meeting space do we need to is there a purpose to physical space at all like all these questions about office space but only two people mentioned this mental health and anxiety and burnout this was at the height of the pandemic and when we went to something like thought exchange a totally different way of thinking about the distributed listening experience when you answer a question like that you then get out to anonymously see everyone else's answers and you can upvote and downvote those answers you get to engage with each other's thoughts and when two people were like listen I'm going through a lot right now. I really wish we could talk about burnout and anxiety. When other people saw those, they're like, you know what? I didn't think of that, or more probably more realistically, I wasn't brave enough to say that. But now that I see that, I'm putting my chips on that. That's what we should be talking about. And so when you change the axis and say, don't show me the most frequently mentioned, show me the highest voted, then what we saw was that only two brave souls were the ones who mentioned it. They were like second to bottom on the most frequently mentioned. But when we changed the axis, it was second to the top. It was the most highest topic was around mental health and anxiety. And so what we found was that if we use a tool like Notion to improve how we communicate, we use a tool like Thought Exchange to improve how we listen and we engage different conversation that way. And then, as I said, using rent to foster connection is, I think, a stupid use of resources these days. So thinking of it, like, how do you foster that sense of connection and belonging by doing things like co-working weeks or doing retreats or finding other ways to intentionally working with a client and bringing them together. There are a lot of fun things I think you can do that way. But again, all the things that brought us to here, this amazing in-person optimized experience with the chef and the food and the cooking, it was great for what it was, but it no longer serves us now. So I think a big lesson for us is to unlearn and let go of some of the things that historically worked to experiment and find new things that work. So those are a couple of the, the tools and some suggestions I'd have for companies that are grappling with this change. Yeah. And I love it. And I remember when you were, when we were sitting outside in Chicago and you were telling me, and I'm a numbers guy. So all of a sudden I started thinking to myself, wow, 
that's $240,000 that you can spend on some amazing experiences with your employees instead of rent, mm-hmm. which is what you're doing. And I want to, because what we're talking about a lot this season is around being maverick minded and human obsessed. And from the moment I met you, Mark, you are maverick minded for CEO and you're very human obsessed and making these experiences right. But I want, I want to talk a little bit about the talk you gave because for our listeners, Mark and I were at a one day event and Mark gets up to talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Not typically what you see a middle-aged white male doing at a conference. And I just remember your talk and your journey as a CEO. And I think that maverick-minded and human-obsessed aspect our listeners need to hear because I think it validates how important experience is and the experience ecosystem. Can you just share a little bit about your philosophy around DEI and where that plays for you as a CEO? Yeah, I mean, so the brief history, the journey that we started this with, this was back to 2014. And, you know, we were talking about the time we had a number of people leave the organization. And each one of those were, as we said at the time, like individually explainable. One person went to get their MBA. Fine, fair enough. One person wanted to move across the country, especially when we were very co-located in Chicago. Leaving Chicago generally meant leaving the organization. One person went to go do a startup with one of their best friends. Like every one of those, I was like, okay, yeah, I get it. You know, good luck on your next endeavor. But all of them were women. And when we step back and look at this, we were wondering, like, is there a bigger pattern? Is there something going on here that we can't see? I remember, you know, in my naivete at the time saying, like, surely not, right? Like, we're good, right? We have a great company culture. But just in case, let's let's do an audit on how, like, what is the real employee experience at the company? And so we brought in a third party, someone that could independently look at us and talk to our alumni and talk to people who are still in the company and say, like, just in case, where are the blind spots? Are there parts of your experience that you don't have a handle on? And ever joking, I'm like, surely there is no blind spots with an all straight white male leadership team, right? Like, there's there's <laughs> nothing we would have missed in that experience. Um, so when we started doing this, we're like, wow, we got, I mean, we got this amazing, I remember reading it, report of all the good things and then all the things that were not so good and reading it in black and white and seeing about what the experience was, not what we wanted it to be, was one of the more eye-opening things. And so it became this journey to think about how could we change our company to be more inclusive, to be more equitable, and to be more diverse. We eventually changed the DEI program to include the letter B, focusing on belonging, which is where we talk a lot about things like our onboarding program and how we can actually foster that even in a a distributed office environment. But I think the big thing that happened, so in after George Floyd's murder in 2020, I wanted to reach out to other people. We had been doing this now for about you know six years, and I wanted to find other leaders that were running a DEI program. And I had a Vistage peer group, and I had my own like software company peer group, the one I had started called Kermit. But I wanted to find other leaders that were really invested in DEI because I was thinking about this. You know, I have a coach that helps me on my sales side. I've got a coach that works with me on organizational development. I didn't have a, a DEI coach. These are all internal conversations we had. And Loyola University in Chicago was building a cohort for leaders who specifically wanted to learn more about how to drive organizational change and how to actually get involved with other DEI leaders. And so I applied for and got into the very first inaugural program for DEI leadership. Uh, And one of the things that they were telling us in that program was most of you are thinking about this DEI work as an initiative and you should be thinking about it as a strategy. And at first, I honestly, I was like, those are the same things. What do you mean? That's semantics. And when they think about it as an initiative, you think about it as a, as a project. Initiatives have generally a start date and an end date. They have like a small task force. And you think about it as a thing to get done. 
but like no one has a sales and marketing initiative. As you get bigger, you just have a different go-to market strategy. You're always talking about it. You're always investing and you're always thinking about your go-to market and your sales. And just as you get bigger, your, your tactics change and your techniques change. And maybe your target audience, your target market changes. That was their point is like, if you think about all the things you're doing for that in your business, you probably have a sales and marketing budget and you probably have a director of sales and marketing. You probably have a coach that helps you think through that. And every, every quarter you reevaluate this with your board all of those things that make it a strategy, those same things should apply to your DEI focus, that you should have mm. a dedicated budget for it. You should have leaders who are getting trained in it. You should be having an outside coach on your advisory board. You should be making the same metrics that you have and the goals of, kind of KPIs you have on, on your sales side. You should have the exact same things on, on your DEI side. And it really helped us to kind of think about our journey differently. And this is a company that had been doing work in this space for year, you know, six years going in. It helped us to reevaluate techniques to make this more core to the company strategy and to really help us think about really changes to all levels of our organization, not just at the employee experience level. I love talking about that obviously quite a lot, but who owns the company, who runs the company, who advises the company? Like, how can we think about systemic change to really make this strategy more, more intentional in the company? And so there was a lot of focus, I think, for us to take the lessons we had learned those last six years, but really make it more core to the central mission of the organization. So let's get real about this, though, Mark. We hear a lot of organizations. We hear a lot of leaders talk about DEI, you know, and, and that it's a focus for them, but they're not really doing it. I mean, when I heard all the things that you were doing at TXI, as you were just saying, your advisory board, who advises, who owns the company, all those pieces, that is very, in our terms, maverick-minded, right? Like, most leaders don't do that. So... I guess my question to you then, as you are probably now starting to coach people and doing this, what would be the first one or two things you would say to a CEO, to a senior leader in an organization around this DEI experience for the whole organization as it fits into the experience ecosystems? A couple of things. One, don't underestimate how much, if you really focus on this, how much it will change things. Let's just take the E, for example, the one that's maybe most underappreciated. How do you make things equitable? One of the biggest pieces of advice, the phrase that changed TXI, I think, the most was take things that are implicit and make them very explicit. Make sure everyone has the same equitable understanding. Let's say, like, how do I get promoted? How do I get raised? Before this, you know, we were a very flat company and very small company. So it's very obvious to say, oh, this person's a senior developer and this person's a developer and this person's a lead developer. People, you know, and everyone just knew that because we all worked with each other. And then at some point you're like, well, why? Why did this person get promoted? Maybe it's because they are very comfortable and they come from a very you know, privileged background and they can say, hey, I'm ready for that promotion. Here's what I've done. They can justify and advocate for themselves. Not everyone always feels as comfortable doing that. They can put themselves and make themselves here very visible. There are all kinds of statistics where you post a job and men who maybe meet 50% of the qualifications will apply. And women who meet 90% of the qualifications will not apply because they don't think they mm -hmm. meet the right criteria. And so if you make the role, like, here's how we think about promotions. Here's how we think about compensation. And you make that very explicit. Everyone now has the same equitable understanding for what growth means. But to do that, you have to write down the observable behaviors of what it takes to grow in the organization. And for something, for a company that was always very small and that was always just like, we thought like in the ether and known, but we never actually wrote it very explicitly. This meant changing how we think about career progression, how we think about support, how we think about feedback, it meant creating manager structure to actually help support people in their growth. It meant writing down 
salary bands and make communicating salary more transparently. We broke LinkedIn. When you post a job, I think <laughs> you're supposed to have 10,000 characters and our job descriptions had, I think like 14,000 characters because we were trying to describe what success looks like six months in, nine months in, one year in. We talked about what your salary is going to be. We talked about the kind of projects you're going to have. So anyone who applies to the company knows what they're getting into. We publish our diversity report. People can see where we are as a company and where we're trying to change. That one sentence of take something that's implicit and make it explicit fundamentally changed the entire strategy we had around human growth and support in their careers. And so committing to this is not a light commitment. I mean, that was, and actually I should tell you the first, talk about experiences, the first time we did it, we totally screwed it up. Oh my God, it was awful. <laughs> it, it was so, it came from a, such a good place, such a lovely intention to take this growth path we'd never written down and make it very explicit, but we got it so wrong and it really pissed people off. And so, you know, lesson learned there, we had to think about how we can make our growth path better. When we first did it, it was very like, a, it was like a ladder, it's very linear. And so it looked like the only way to grow was to become eventually a salesperson and make it rain or become the CTO. That was it. Like there's one of only <laughs> two options. And so, you know, people were like, I don't want to do that. I'm a developer. I want to be a good technologist. I don't want to sell. And there's only one CTO. So where do I go from here? Like it was such a linear path that we had really box people in. Of course, humans don't grow that way. Humans have different interests. They have different experiences and they have, want to grow in different ways. And so one of the, I guess, you know, the intention was to make it very explicit, good intention, but really poor execution our first time in doing that and frustrate a lot of people. That's when we actually brought in a member of our advisory board to help us think through this growth model where you could either grow in core skills, like as a developer or in influence skills. And there's multiple directions you can take in and there's a whole discussion we can have around growth paths and how to think about employee <laughs> development. But it was one of those just really key lessons learned of to do this well, it takes a serious commitment and you're probably going to get it wrong because these things are hard. And when we did, thankfully, we're able to iterate on it relatively quickly. And then by that, I mean, within a few years to really dial in and learn from it. But yeah, it's not for the faint of heart taking on these challenges. If you're going to really go from like a, you know, initiative driven by a small select handful that doesn't gain much adoption to a strategy that really changes the core of who you are as a company, it challenges almost all of your company rituals and experiences. It challenges the vision for the company and even things like how you level, promote, compensate and recognize people. A lot of those things change. Which goes, you know, I talked about my Disney days. It's I remember when I was in finance, getting that document that said, here are all the core skills. Here's everything. This is how you get your way through your promotion and how power, how empowered I felt as a cast member there. But you're doing this on a smaller scale. This is affecting your whole experience ecosystem. I don't want to leave out the what you're doing outside of TXI either, because I think you are doing some powerful things in the community when I say the community at large for leadership, and mm -hmm. you talked about the Kermit Collective camps, which I really love because we're going to do something this winter of 2023 and this term around the unconference approach. And we're, we're getting a lot of feedback on that. Can you tell me what can other leaders, in your opinion, learn from this unconference approach? Because I think it's really hard because many are type A personality. They want this big agenda, everything written out and everything. Give us some advice around that and what you're doing with the Kermit Collective. Well, for, let's give, I mean, this even the, the idea of where that came from was hysterical. So we 
made the, I don't know, brave, stupid decision, one of those two, in 2012 to fire our biggest client. Suffice it to say, it was, you know, the metric CCR, or stands for client concentration risk. How many eggs do you have in one basket? And you never want more than about 20% of your revenue in one area. We had like 55% of our revenue with one client in a very bad relationship. And so when we, to intentionally protect our culture, we parted ways with this client and then realized, oh my goodness, we have massive problems now. We have a pipeline problem. We have a collections problem. We had a utilization. People were on the beach. They had nothing to do. Like All these things we needed to figure out. And so we started reaching out to our direct competitors just to get a sense of how they were doing, what we could learn from them. I had just come to this company from a much larger global consulting company. And so I thought I can teach people what I know in some of these areas, but I really need to know how about how to run a small, medium-sized business. I'd never done that before. Not as an owner, at least. I was, you know, I'd always been like a doer. And so I started this group reaching out to my direct competitors, people who knew exactly what I was going through, who understood the challenges of running a software organization, who had been in the community, people I thought I could learn from, and said, I think there's something to say about the value of what we called cooperation, like direct competitors collaborating together and cooperating together. Could we share more than we could lose from like potential you know, fear of, of rivalries or fear of competition. And so we rented a house. This is funny. I rented a house that slept 25 people and they all said yes. So I had these people coming in from Costa Rica, Uruguay, Brazil, Scotland, England, and then across the US, they're the best software leaders I knew. And they were all like, we don't quite know what's gonna go on, but like, sure, we'll come out and try this out. And so everyone said yes. And then someone's like, Mark, you dumbass. When a house says it sleeps 25, you know that means like two people in a king bed, and two people in a queen bed, you're making your competitors sleep together. You know that, right? And I was like, oh my God, yes, you're right. That's not the experience I'm going for. So I had to, <laughs> I had to go rent two more houses very quickly. But the idea was that everyone would come together. And the very first you know, time we got together, the important thing we wanted to do was tell, like the point of this was learning. Rather than getting together and saying, what's that awesome thing you can teach me? We threw all that out and said, actually, what's the biggest mistake that you made in the last year in your role? And we found that, if people aren't coming in, you know, chest thumping about how awesome their company is and this amazing thing they did, they wrote this book, they started a thing. If instead they're taking themselves down a peg and saying, man, I really screwed this up. It cost us a bunch. Like I just said, I was telling you about the first time we tried to make our career progressions really explicit. We totally screwed it up. People were able to learn from that and empathize with that. And they built a sense of trust around that. And then the second day we said, now teach us something. But what we want to do is put up a board and if you've got something you can tell us, something that you think would be valuable for the community to learn, put it on a sticky note and put it up. And then we'll dot vote on the best ideas what people want to hear from. So the unconference was structured loosely around, we want to learn from each other, but the topics can be what the community votes on. And so we put up things and then people started voting. Like, so what the topics I would have picked were very different from what maybe the community ultimately picked. And a lot of it came from the, like, how did you recover from that failure? Like you, you just lost your biggest client. How did you recover from that? You rolled out a program that pissed off everybody. How did you recover from that? Like there were so many good learnings uh -huh. people want to take yeah. from the failures. Anyway, so the unconference was always structured around letting the community have a little bit more autonomy around where the day's conversation could go. And we had other structured talks and we had some agendas for the, you know, the type A group, but it was nice that the community could dictate today. This is what I want to dial into. This is what I want to hear more about. And then because we have a pretty active community, some of the talks that just didn't get enough dot votes, but they were still interesting, we could do later on as virtual calls after the conference was over. We could do later on, you know, through Zoom or whatever. So we've maintained that, that every time we get together, this, this collective of organizations we call the Kermit Collective, these are all really high-end, amazing, good software companies that I respect as worthy rivals. When we get together, we will start always with mistake. 
because I feel like that is the most important way to learn is through admitting and owning up to failure and kind of thinking about the impact that I had. And then after we get that out of the way, then we talk about, okay, what can you teach me? What can you learn? And allow that unconference style approach to let ideas kind of bubble up to the surface. I love it. Love it. Got a lot to pick your brain on around that. So listen, man, you've given us some incredible insights today, but I want to wrap up with one last question. And in particular for the leaders who are listening, what's the best advice you've ever received about leadership? I will caveat this by saying, I wish I listened to it more than I always do. And I really try to remember this more. Like, I'd like to tell you that I'm always good at this, but it's something I'm really striving to bring back into my life. So the best advice I got, and this was something I was seeing a couple of years ago, is that busy is the new stupid. And by that, I mean, there was a great interview between, it was Bill Gates and Warren Buffett. And they were talking about, show us your daily planner. And Bill Gates held up his thing. It's like, oh, I'm in this meeting. I'm in this meeting. Look, I'm talking to all these people. I got my fingers all over the organization. Look at everything I'm driving. And I think Warren Buffett had like a thing on Thursday. That was it. He's like, the rest of the time I'm thinking and I'm reading. We have a, a tendency, and I by side we, I mean Americans specifically, depending on how global your audience is, we associate busyness with virtue and value. So when you say like, how are you? Americans will always like a pride of honor, be like, oh, I'm so busy. I'm exhausted. I'm doing all these things. And we're generally overscheduled. Anyone during the last couple of years probably has changed their calendar quite a bit to have meeting after meeting after meeting and booking their whole calendar full. And that means you don't have time to think, to read, and to contemplate, really to be strategic. It's hard to be thinking about things like experiences or big changes in your business in between half-hour meetings. And one of the best pieces of advice that I got is, yeah, busy is the new stupid. You need to dedicate time to have blocks of time, not 20 minutes here and there, to think and to consider and to make that a priority in your life as a leader that you can demonstrate that not only as a model for others, but to really give yourself time to think about where am I going with this business and what should I be doing? And that it's valuable time, that your time as a leader is not just when you're busy doing a bunch of things. Now, I say that and I look at my calendar and say, have I learned this lesson? Like I, I will try to <laughs> schedule this block of time. I'm like, do not step over that. And I'm always proud of myself and I defend that block. I'm like, nope, that's my thinking time. Do not take it. And then yeah. there are times when I cave, I'm like, oh, I need to get this done. So just, you know, half hour here, half hour there. And then my whole week is scheduled. It's the best advice I've had as a leader. And I'm being a moment of vulnerability. I'm still learning that lesson. Uh, I, love but I, I firmly defend it. I love it. And I've written this down. So you're going to probably see this on LinkedIn somewhere. Busy is the new stupid. Like I love it and what it stands for. Well, it has come to that point um, where we have to start to wrap up this episode. But Mark, we do these things called the combustion questions. And they are three randomly selected questions. And you're from a software company. We have this amazing human algorithm back here. And um, I just got the three questions handed to me. So I don't even know what they are. So are you ready for your combustion questions? Sure. Why not? (laughs) Well, combustion question number one is if you found a $100 bill on the sidewalk Mm -hmm. and you had to spend it on yourself, what would you do with it? Halloween decorations. Every time we are. Halloween decorations. It's that time. Whenever this gets recorded and published, but it's that time of year. And my daughter and I are deep into Stranger Things this year, and she really wants to do a Stranger Things party. And I was like, all right, game on. Let's think about that. And so I just found on Etsy, because, of course, everyone makes everything on Etsy, a Demogorgon pinata 
So we could literally attack it with Steve Harrington's bat. It'd be great. Uh, we could have a whole we'd have a whole Stranger Things party going on. So yes, one hundred percent. We've definitely got to talk because I have a fourteen year old daughter who is into Stranger Things too. So definitely have to figure some of these things out. Yes. All right. Combustion question number two: couch or recliner? <laughs> is my wife getting a say in this? Uh, I would say recliner, <laughs> no. and I would, no. I would, I would, I do not control the investments in our family, so we would go couch because I want to stay happily married. <laughs> All right, final combustion question: What do you think about cruise ships? You and I are going to disagree on this one. I think they are floating petri dishes and should be avoided at all costs. I think, especially in this day and age, it is just like you line up for a bunch of like, you know, mediocre food takes three hours to get on and off the boat. The rooms are small. Everyone gets sick. I see no value in them whatsoever. Having said that, I've never been on a cruise, so I'm judging without ever, ever experienced one. But I got to tell you, it is like my dad has his 75th birthday coming up. And my sister and I said, whatever you want to do, we'll do it. And he said, great. I want to take a cruise to Alaska. And we said, all right, whatever you want to do, we'll do it. Just not that. Anything else you want to do. So I am. Uh, Mark, Mark, I've got to school you on what cruises are like. I've done three this year. Nobody got sick. So, yes. <laughs> we, but we, agree, we agree on so many things. And this one I point, know. I'm just like, I'm like this a hard, gonna, hard note. And I have another very dear friend of mine who says the same thing. He's like, why would I get on that? He also doesn't fly an airplane for the same reason. He's like, it's just a condensed one. So, uh, <laughs> well, thank you so much. I will let all the listeners know, go out, find Mark on LinkedIn. And if you can't find him, he's in my connections. We will be posting about this episode. Mark, thank you again so much for all these amazing nuggets. And, you know, I think I'm going to close it with just saying, busy is the new stupid. And I love that. So thank you, sir. Of course. Good catching up this morning. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Combustion Chronicles. If you've enjoyed this episode, please take a few minutes to subscribe, rate, and review. Remember that I'm always looking to meet more big thinking mavericks. So let's keep the conversation going by connecting on LinkedIn. If you want to discover more about human-obsessed, maverick-minded experience ecosystems, go to mofi.co where you'll find ideas and resources to help you ignite your own experience revolution. Or go to experienceevangelist.com to learn more about my mission to challenge leaders to blow up outdated siloed systems and rebuild them with an aligned human-first approach. And as always, stay safe, be well, and keep blowing shit up. <laughs>